please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three articles from the January-February 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. You can also earn continuing medical education credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. Well, hello everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm the co-host of Allergy Talk, and I'm an associate professor at Emory University. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts. First, Dr. Marin Kalangaro. Hi, I'm Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And of course, we have the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch and past president, Dr. Stan Feynman. Uh, Thank you, and uh, it's good to be here. I'm past president of the College of Allergy. Just want to make sure you qualify that. And I'm also an adjunct uh, adjunct associate professor at Emory. I'm glad to be here. So you may hear that the audio is a little bit different today. We are doing this virtually in light of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And uh, I think we're all adjusting to the new normal roles. Uh, Appreciate your feedback on how this podcast is going. Um, Stan, I'd love to hear from you first how things have been going and your adjustment in your practice uh, with the new social distancing uh, regulations on in effect right now. Well, right now I'm doing... uh exclusively telemedicine to see patients. And uh, our practice is open for allergy shots and biologic injections. And uh, we do have some some of the folks in the office, some of the docs and providers are seeing selected patients and let's say doing selected testing uh, when necessary. And mm-hmm. how are things going with you, Marin, and the Emory Clinic? Um, it's sort of similar. We're doing largely um, telemedicine and seeing some selective severe asthmatics are other patients on an emergent basis. We are continuing allergy shots and biologics as of now, but transitioning to home auto-injector therapy as much as we can. And as of today, we're trying to move our Zolar patients who have been stable to home therapy as well. Yeah, I think I saw that mm-hmm. recommendation. And I do think, um, you know, anything we can do to protect our patients, but provide high quality care, I think, you know, we're pretty resilient specialty. And um, I think we're all doing our best for our patients. I th- we're doing similar things at the children's uh, clinic. And uh, so far, I think patients actually enjoy uh visits from the comfort of their home. Uh, you know, we have mm-hmm. previous episodes on telemedicine, if you'd like to learn more about that. And I know the college definitely has a lot of resources in their uh, website, not only for the patient care aspect, but also the small business aspect. Uh, I think a lot of allergists are hurting as small businesses in this uh, climate. Well, that's true. As a matter of fact, uh, we've, as our practice, we've applied for uh, various loans and uh, uh, support and help that the, uh, the government has offered. And um, it's been a little slow going. We just got approval for our uh, PPP uh loan. Uh, we did get some compensation for Medicare, which was a, an automatic um, payment. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, we did have to furlough 
uh, uh, a number of our staff, probably about 25% or so because of the uh, reduction in, uh, in, in volume and um, you know, need. We've also cut our hours back a little bit. Yeah, so I think a lot of adjustments, we're doing a lot of uh, reassignment of our employees at the Children's Hospital. So uh, I would encourage our colleagues to reach out to the professional societies. There are a lot of resources and webinars and other events available. Um, So for this uh, episode, I think I wanted to briefly start uh, and uh, have Stan speak a few words about one of uh, our assistant editors, uh, Dr. Chitra Dinikar. Yeah, unfortunately, Chitra uh, suffered from a uh, severe illness and passed away at the end of March. Uh, She's going to be missed uh, by everybody who uh, knows her and uh, and she's touched a, a, a wide number of people. Besides being on the faculty at Stanford, uh, she was very active in the College of Allergy. She was on the Board of Regents. Uh, she received the College's Distinguished uh, Fellow Award. She received the Woman in Allergy Award. Uh, she received the Jerome Glazer Distinguished Service Award, uh, which is in uh, for pediatric allergists. And she was on the uh, ABAI, the American Board of Allergy uh, and Immunology. Uh, and, and it's just a, it's sad to uh, miss her. She was a very uh, uh, talented uh, athlete as well. As a matter of fact, she was a sprinter uh, besides being a dancer. And one of my fondest memories was when uh, she, she danced with me uh, at my uh, president's reception at the college meeting. So uh, that was a few years ago, but uh, she was certainly a lot better dancer than me. So we all miss Chitra and uh, remember her fondly. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. I, I obviously did not know her as personally as you well, but uh, again, going to our talks, a lot of the contribution to the specialty. So uh, certainly a great loss um, and certainly will be remembered. Um, I think we'll get started then. I uh, will present the first article. Um, this article was in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. The title of the article is Loss of Bronchial Protection with ICS Plus LABA Treatment beta receptor dynamics, and the effect of aledronate. And this is an article that starts with an interesting examination and premise. We are familiar with the phenomenon of tachyphylaxis with chronic beta agonist use. About a report up to 70% of patients might have a loss of bronchial protection where for example, we have patients who frequently use beta agonists and it's less effective. That might be occurring in exercise-induced bronchospasm and other situations. The SMART trial showed potential increase of asthma-related death. And so this, there was this black box warning for a while that had concerns about the overuse, and especially monotherapy with long-acting beta agonists. And this is thought to be due to downregulation of the beta receptor through internalization due to chronic overuse of the medication. But there seems to be a mechanism that involves farnicillation. I'm sorry if I butchered this name. I hope there's no biochemists on the uh, listening on the podcast. But essentially, uh, this farnicil diphosphate synthase is actually inhibited by a very common medication we use in practice, which are bisphosphonates. And it, it seems that inhibition of this farnicil diphosphate synthase seems to prevent endocytosis of the receptors. So there was this interesting idea that this study was trying to do, 
called the Allegronate for Asthma or Alpha trial, where could we start a bisphosphonate on someone on long-acting beta agonist therapy and prevent the loss of Brock protection due to continuous chronic use of beta agonists? So this is a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial, but it took 78 patients with persistent asthma. They were on inhaled bronchial, I'm sorry, they were on inhaled steroid, fluticasone 250 micrograms BID. And after two weeks, they were randomized to either fluticasone semiterol plus allegronate or placebo. So they added that semiterol in addition to their inhaled steroid for eight weeks and prior to the study. And then eight weeks afterwards, they did methicoline challenges. And what they're defining as a loss of bronchoprotection is the greater than one doubling dose reduction in the PC20, the provocative concentration of methylcholine, leading to a 20% reduction in FEV1. So they did not see a difference after the eight weeks in the protective effect of allegronate in this loss of bronchoprotection because not a lot of patients actually had a loss of bronchoprotection. The I quoted you that 70% um, figure earlier, but in this study, it was low as 33 to 38% of patients had this loss of bronchoprotection when they were on chronic somiterol, which was much lower than we expected. And the authors hypothesized that, that it's potentially because they gave the long-acting beta agonist with an inhaled steroid. And there seems to be some evidence that inhaled corticosteroids increase beta adrenergic receptor expression. So it's possible that inhaled steroids, their protective effect may mitigate our concerns about tachyphylaxis and the loss of bronchoprotection. Now, they looked at also beta-2 receptor expression and function that did not seem to be reduced in patients who are on salmeterol plus uh, fluticasone. So there's at least in an in vitro side, there seems to be supportive of evidence that a lot of our concerns we have about overuse of beta agonists might actually be mitigated in inhaled steroids. And, and certainly it might be a good idea that for patients where we normally would just give in a beta agonist as needed, say exercise and do bronchospasm to prevent the loss of that effect, we might consider adding inhaled corticosteroid or would be more reassured uh, and a continuing uh, piece of evidence that the black box warning for long activated agonists are only really for monotherapy and not and, and not as much a concern if they're on inhaled steroids. So I thought, I thought that sort of was an interesting idea to start with, but also makes me reassured that uh, LABAs are pretty... Uh, uh, safe uh, with now this study in addition to the current body of literature. I actually thought that was quite an impressive percentage, like about more than 35% of asthmatics experienced a loss of bronchial protection, which I thought that was a little high, higher than I would have expected. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we never really look for it. And, um, uh, certainly it is not zero. So mm -hmm. I, I do agree with you that it could be affecting some patients, but certainly we could at least cushion some of these patients with the addition of an ICS, it sounds like. Right. Now, you know, years ago, uh, we we saw that uh, in terms of the protective effect with ICS combined with the LABAs 
Um, and fortunately, now we don't have to you know, worry about the box warning uh, when they're combined. But uh, the interesting thing to me was the fact that these other, that this other medication could theoretically change, uh, you know, and, and induce that loss of bronchoprotection effect. And, you know, some of the older patients are on, uh, you know, these uh, calcium, uh, you know, uh, th- these medications that affect calcium metabolism. So you wonder, you know, if there are other things that, uh, I mean, are affecting it as well. So it, it's something to think about. Well, absolutely. I thought it was a very interesting idea. It's just that they didn't have enough patients to measure the difference. And that's sort of, um, you know, doesn't mean that maybe without bigger N, now, if they powered the study appropriately, maybe that 30% could even drop further. I mean, that would be very interesting. To look at the I wonder if there would be a difference if they looked at salmeterol as opposed to formoterol or whether this can sort of be extrapolated across all lavas. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't see why it would be specific to salmeterol, but who knows? I mean, I think that that's, that might be something they might consider just to convince themselves that it's... Uh, not just specific to Samiro. I think that that makes a lot of sense too. I, I, I would be I would be surprised if it was just specific to Samiro. I would think it's a class effect, and in fact, the short acting might be, uh, you know, might be impacted as well. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, on the theme of asthma, Stan, I think you also have a very interesting study on uh, asthma severity as well. In fact, Chitra uh, was the one who reviewed this for Allergy Watch. Uh, the title of the article was Step-Up Therapy in Black Children and Adults with Poorly Controlled Asthma. So the premise of the study is the fact that uh, all of our guidelines, uh, step-up therapy, uh, the studies have all been done really in white uh, patients. They've not really been done in black patients. So this uh, report is really two uh, parallel perspective, randomized, double-blind um, crossover trials with four different treatments uh, in each of the groups. One of the groups, of course, is children, and there were 280 children between 5 and 11 years of age, and uh, there were 294 adolescents and adults who were 12 years of age and older. And um, the identity of, uh, of, of Black was that you had to have one grandparent, at least one grandparent, who identified themselves as Black, and they did do some uh, genotyping and, and, and some things like that to, um, uh, to to check that as well. But uh, basically, that's what the uh, entry criteria was uh, to see, you know, uh, if there was a racial difference in the responses to the um, <clears throat> to the updosing when uh, uh, patients were not adequately controlled. So there was four different um, uh, therapies that they did. The first was doubling the ICS, the inhaled steroid. And in children, they started with 50 micrograms of fluticasone, and they would double it up to 100 micrograms. The other arm of the study was doubling the ICS plus adding a LABA. The other was quintupling the dose of inhaled steroids, so going up to 250 micrograms twice a day. And then they wanted to add the LABA to the 50 microgram, but they couldn't do that. There was no product available. They got the products from uh, uh, Glaxo and they didn't have that as an option. So they didn't do that for the children. But for the adults and the adolescents and adults who started with 100 uh, micrograms of platicazone dose, uh, two puffs twice a day, they could increase uh, the platicazone two and a half times up to 250 micrograms twice a day. 
They could also quintuple that dose to 500 micrograms, and they could add the LABA to the 100, and they could also increase the faticasone by two and a half and add the LABA. Okay, so that's the four different arms of the trial. And then they, they did a crossover uh, uh, of the different therapies so they could try to uh, figure out which one worked better. And their primary outcome, primary clinical outcome was really uh, a hierarch- it was really a hierarchical composite measure of sequentially evaluated asthma exacerbations. So that included things like asthma control days, percentage of, uh, of the predicted FEV1 at the end of the 14-week uh, regimen. So each one was a 14-week, and then it was crossed over. And those were basically the, the primary outcome. They did have some secondary outcomes, looking at some of the uh, asthma control tests and quality of life measures. But um, anyway, let's go down to the data. Let's look at the patients, first of all. In the, in the two groups, so we have children and we have adolescents and adults. In the children group, of course, most of them were males, and that's what we would expect in a pediatric uh, asthma group. Uh, the other thing is that they had a very high eosinophil count. Uh, peripheral eosinophils were over two, 300, the mean was, and the mean IgE was over 286, compared to the adolescents and adults where uh, only 30% were males, so it was predominantly females, which is what we see in adults as well. And they had lower mean eosinophils and the lower IgE as well. So not as much uh, atopy in the adults and adolescents group, but more in the pediatric group. So let's look at the data. Okay, so the interesting thing, when you compare the percentage of the black children with asthma who had a superior response to the different treatments, and you compare increasing the faticasone by double to using faticasone, double the dose, plus adding salmeterol, uh, you see they're fairly equivalent. In other words, um, they, they were, there was 41% uh, response of superior in the fluticasone doubling and 53. So it was not statistically significant. But when you quintuple the dose, so you quintuple the dose of fluticasone and you do the 100 micrograms of fluticasone plus sometanol, those basically had the similar, in fact, it was a null, it, it satisfied the null hypothesis so there, that there was no really superior response to either group when you quintupled the dose of the uh, inhaled steroid in the pediatric group. So now when you look at the adults and adolescents, you didn't get that. So it was really what you generally see in the other studies where the superior response was adding the uh, long-acting bronchodilator. Uh, even when you quintuple the dose of the inhaled steroid, there was a little bit of satisfaction of the null hypothesis compared to adding it. But when you just doubled it, you didn't get that. Um, and, um, you know, so basically in the adults and adolescents, you really didn't get that uh, significant uh, superiority uh, change uh, when you compared the two. And that was really the surprising factor was the fact that in the pediatric group, um, it, unexpectedly, we saw that increasing the dose of inhaled steroid had a better outcome. Now, granted, you had to do quintuple the dose, which in fact did cause some uh, reduction in the ratio of urinary uh, cortisol um, in, in the pediatric. So there was some systemic effect and some reduction or change in the pituitary adrenal axis. So there was some adrenal axis suppression in, in that higher dose. But I think that the interesting thing that's questioned here, and this is what Chitra came out with her comment, 
was that the fact that nearly half the black children with poorly controlled asthma, um, increasing dose, I'm sorry, increasing the dose of inhaled steroid enabled better outcomes in nearly half the black children with poorly controlled asthma while adding the inhaled steroid and LABA was very, you know, was superior in a very similar percentage. In other words, there wasn't that much superiority. And so what that means is, at least in children, the black children, they may have a totally different response. We have to be more careful when we do these studies and when we decide about what our asthma guidelines are, uh, when we look at the racial makeup of the patients, when we look at the studies. So there may be something to do uh, with their response. And I, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, we know the answer yet, but uh, I thought this was a very interesting study. And I thought that Chitra's comments were very uh, uh, cogent. So you always wonder, you know, which way should we go if we know that both are, you know, equivalent, you know, if you're saying that increasing the inhaled corticosteroid dose or adding a a long active beta agonist have equivalent effects, uh, I'd be curious to get your ideas on which way you'd go. I give you my opinion. I think if I was going to think about the risk benefit for the two ways, um, increasing the inhaled corticosteroid dose, I'm worried about their height. I'm worried about, you know, what's going to be their final adult height. I know the camp studies suggest that it could be around, you know, 1.1 centimeters average, but, you know, who knows? Maybe the more you give, the shorter they'll be, though we don't know the magnitude of that effect. And then we just talked about it, the loss of bronchial protection. Um, It's not in all patients, but adding that lava conversely would potentially in 30% or more might have them be less responsive to the albuterol that they need as rescue. So um, I don't know. What, what, do, what do you folks think? If you have a kid who needs step-up therapy, uh, what, what do you usually do? Well, I do add the inhaled steroid. I, I, I'm sorry. I usually add the long-acting bronchodilator. There's not a question about that. But the, but the I think the thing that this study raises is the fact that there was, at least in half the children, a better response when you added the inhaled steroid or you increased the dose of the inhaled steroid compared to the long-acting bronchodilator just in the children. So there may be a subset of children who do better with a higher dose inhaled steroid than they would even adding the lava, even though that's mm-hmm. kind of our current guideline. Mm-hmm. And another thing I thought was interesting was that in the adults and adolescents, like there was really no difference between a higher dose of inhaled steroid as opposed to 100 micrograms of fluticasone. So I was wondering whether biologics may, you know, you may want to be considered biologics earlier in this population. But then I realized that these minority populations are underrepresented even in biologic trials. So we don't really know whether there is this meaningful role for like ancestry in response to biologics for these patients either. Correct. Yeah. But out of curiosity, Marin, do you have a go-to for your step up in, Oh, um, in children In children? So I usually do what Stan does. I tend to go from ICS to ICS plus lava. Um, but, and that's mostly to decrease uh, to, to, for the steroid sparing effect. And decrease the cumulative dose of inhaled steroid. 
Yeah, I, I think um, for uh, black patients, I have increased the inhaled storage based on some of the preliminary data on this. Uh, but I would uh, sort of agree at a consensus. I am primarily concerned about growth and potentially with, again, interpreting that previous study, maybe the ICS would uh, lower that loss of bronchoprotection effect potentially. But again, this is where biomarkers and you know heterogeneity uh, would help empower us to make more informed decisions than you know our gut or you know let's see what happens sort of trial and error type of decisions. And that's another thing. There weren't and beyond eosinophils, there weren't any other biomarkers that were studied in this paper. Correct? Not really. No, they did mm-hmm. look at the. Uh... The methicoline challenge, um, but uh, in, in some of the patients, but uh, no, the eosinophil was all, they didn't have uh, exhaled nitric oxide. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's another thing you think about, like how much of this is ancestry and how much of this is everything else that has to do with asthma. Right. Well, the, you know, the interesting thing, and I I guess since I've been around a little, you know, a little while, I remember the SMART study where they used um, long-acting uh, selmeterol, uh, and in fact, that's when they pulled it off the market and they added the box warning because, in fact, there was a disproportionate number of black uh, adults, mm-hmm. and most of them were uh, elderly black mm-hmm. adults who were uh, having complications and having problems and having the mortality there in that group. And it could have been because of, number one, uh, uh, the response to beta agonist in that, in, in that uh, race, uh, could have been because of a comorbidity. I mean, there's a whole lot of different questions about why, you know, that happened. But, you know, that's really where it came from. That was years ago. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's go to the last article, which I think was very interesting and something I sometimes struggle with, and that is habit cough. So take it away, Marin. Uh So, yeah, I thought this was extremely interesting. It was a letter by Dr. Weinberger that was published in the annals last year, and it talks about the use of suggestion therapy in pediatric patients with habit cough. Uh, Specifically, he described this habit cough as characterized as a barking sound or a honking sound, and the cough generally tend to disappear when the child was asleep. Overall, habit cough seems quite rare in children, and the frequency of habit cough diagnosis in his institution was about seven per year. Um, And that seems quite low to me because I see habit cough or or rather chronic idiopathic cough much more frequently in my adult clinic. The median age for diagnosis in children in his paper was 10 years, and his treatment consisted of suggestion therapy, primarily with good success rates. And among 85 of those children who were coughing when seen in the clinic, cessation of cough with suggestion therapy was successful in 81 of 85 patients. This letter in particular details the story of a 12-year-old girl with a three-month history of habit cough. And Dr. Weinberger actually saw this patient via Skype due to distance. And using suggestion therapy over Skype, cough cessation occurred within 15 minutes. And the girl's father had recorded the entire procedure and he uploaded the video to a website called habitcough.com with a link to YouTube. And Dr. Weinberger 
then started receiving these emails that were unsolicited from other parents of three different children and even two adults, um, indicating that watching the index child respond to suggestion therapy on YouTube resulted in improvement of their own cough. And all of these cases also had a chronic cough lasting greater than eight weeks that was unresponsive to standard inhalers, steroids, antibiotics, etc. And the cough was described as post-viral in two cases, but still lasted for more than eight weeks and symptoms stopped immediately after watching this recording on YouTube. And interestingly, they even worked in two adult women in their 50s and 60s with chronic cough. I thought this was really interesting. You can um, access the link to the video on habitcough.com. We see a lot of chronic cough on the adult side that's categorized as idiopathic or neurogenic. And we actually established a multidisciplinary chronic cough clinic um, as of this year at Emory. Uh, It's located in the ENT clinic, but we have input of speech therapy, GI, pulmonary, allergy, and we even have an environmental scientist give us their input. Uh, Just because it's so difficult to treat and it tends to become more refractory through the years, and this is thought to be due to these positive feedback mechanisms established through upregulation of neurogenic signaling pathways. And so earlier intervention is likely to be more successful to prevent the establishment of this neurogenic sensitization. And suggestion therapy, similar to speech therapy, may work better during the earlier stages. And it may be something that providers may want to try before the next step, like neuromodulators, like gabapentin or amitriptyline. Um, at Emory, they, in the cough clinic, they use a lot of tramadol in refractory uh, chronic idiopathic cough. And just in view of how um, refractory and potentially even debilitating uh, chronic cough tends to be, uh, there is now a neuromodulating agent in trials for neurogenic cough called gefepixant. So overall, my current approach in treating chronic cough in adults is I try to refer to speech therapy early on in the course if possible, uh, but it may be worth sharing the link to this video. Mary, could you describe exactly what suggestion therapy entails? Like, what did what do you do? So it so I watched the video, and it essentially consisted of Dr. Weinberger trying to sort of consciously convince a child to suppress her cough, like every time she had the urge to cough. And you could actually see how over the course of the video, she was able to sort of suppress her own cough initially consciously, and then I guess it became unconscious. Hmm. So I saw that video. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, you know, and obviously it seemed to work for her. And, you know, I've had, I've struggled with some of these patients through the years as well. And one of the things was interesting he kind of poo-pooed the ice water chips, you know, the uh, sipping ice uh, mm-hmm. to try to soothe the back of the throat. Um, because when you, when you do like, when you, when you go to do a, uh, a, a nasal scope on some of these patients, you use uh, local anesthetic and they clear up immediately. You put a little local anesthetic in the back of their throat, they'll stop coughing. I mean, it's remarkable. Now, you know, that's not an approved therapy and I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that we do that, but there's obviously something there that is, is, is some sort of sensation 
that urges them to, to cough. And of course, if you can suppress it, uh, that's great. But I'm not sure. I don't think it's quite as easy as that video uh, you know, demonstrates. I think some people are, you know, receptive and some people are not. I, I don't know if you ever heard of those people who like watch hypnotism and they just get <laughs> hypnotized by watching the video. I, you know, I think everyone's a little bit different. <laughs> There's better today. Well, you know, years ago, they used to wrap the child in a sheet. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, that was another therapy they did. They'd have the child come into the hospital and they'd wrap him in a sheet to suppress the cough. <laughs> well, did that work? I, well, I don't know I mean, that it works so well. Anymore, so, yeah. <laughs> we don't do it anymore. It's not standard yeah. of care. So, so I guess what you're trying to say is they'll watch the video and just tuck them in very nicely in bed. <laughs> there you go. And then that's well, the you know, the cough went away when they were sleeping. <laughs> that's so, true. So, <laughs> totally worked. You just have nice. So, I mean, I highly doubt that this would do anything for an established co- chronic cough, um, but. It may help in like earlier stages of say post-viral cough. Right. Sure, sure. I mean, I think mind over matter, right? Mm-hmm. I think uh, there's that central nervous system modulation of the cough reflex for sure. I mean, <laughs> it does totally make sense. Well, I mean, that was some pretty interesting articles. I th- we're going to have another episode to finish out this issue. If you, uh, you know listen to our podcast and enjoy what you're hearing please rate our podcast on itunes i really appreciate the wonderful feedback we receive we're always interested in suggestions for future episodes so please email any feedback that you have to allergy talk one word at acaai.org and please don't forget we are offering CME credit, so please go to our website at college.acaai.org slash publications slash algaewash to get information on how to get CME credit for this episode. Have a wonderful day, everyone. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.